0: Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 9, will be our sermon text for this morning. But before we read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your love for us in Jesus, and we thank you for your word, that you have not left us to our own devices to figure things out uh, on our own, but that you have given us the scriptures that we might know you and that we might know your son. We pray, Father, that you would speak to us by your spirit this morning through your word, uh, that you would open our eyes uh, to see Jesus in all of his glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've already told you and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the beginning of the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, "'You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you.' He said, "'Lord, I believe,' and he worshiped him. Jesus said, "'For judgment I came into this world "'that those who do not see may see, "'and those who see may become blind.' Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, "'Are we also blind?' Jesus said to them, "'If you were blind, "'you would have no guilt. "'But now that you say, "'We see,' Your guilt remains. Do you remember uh, in the early 90s when stereograms were big? Uh, I know, even if you were around, around, you're thinking, what's a stereogram? Uh, they, They were called magic eye pictures and you stared at what looked like an abstract mess and eventually a picture just appeared out of nowhere. Uh, to be honest, I don't remember if I've ever seen one. Uh, and when I tried just recently, I couldn't make it work either. Uh, some people apparently just don't have the gift. Uh, now, there's nothing morally wrong with me, at least not because of that, uh, unless it's a lack of patience. But Jesus ends John 9 accusing the Pharisees of not being able to see what is right in front of their face. And he says, because of that, their guilt remains. Uh, this is not the only time Jesus accused the religious leaders of his day of being blind. Uh, in Matthew 15:14, Jesus says of the Pharisees, "Let them alone; they are blind guides." And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. In Matthew 23:24, Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, after calling them hypocrites who focus on small religious rituals but forget about the weightier matters of justice, he says, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now in both Matthew 15 and Matthew 23, the issue is the religious leaders misplaced focus on ritual rather than morality. And not that that is absent in our text this morning, but the main issue here is they are unable to see Jesus. Jesus has been with them for some time, teaching them in their synagogues and in the temple, but they still can't see him for who he is. But unlike physical vision problems and the man born blind in this chapter, their blindness is culpable. Again, verse 41 Jesus says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. You see, unlike the the physically vision impaired, the religious leaders are blind to their blindness, which is about as blind as you can be. And we will see in this story four things which blur our vision. Uh, Looking to rules, looking to other people, looking down on other people, and looking to intellect. On the other hand, if you want Jesus to come into focus, you must see your sin, accept rejection, admit your loneliness, and embrace the folly of the cross. Uh, now we began looking at this chapter last week. You may remember we focused in on the first seven verses In those verses, Jesus and his disciples are passing by. Jesus sees a blind man. He takes note of him. The disciples notice him too, but their thoughts immediately go to blame and judgment. Verse 2, they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus patiently tells them, it was neither this man nor his parents, that is the cause was neither of these things, but the purpose, the opportunity was that God's works might be seen. And then Jesus proclaims himself to be the light of the world. He makes mud with his spit, anoints the man's eyes, and sends him off to wash and be healed, which is what happens. The man born blind goes, washes, and comes back seeing. Uh, Before we jump into the details, though, of what happens next, I want you to to notice, actually, the structure of this story. Uh, in, In verses 8 through 12, John establishes the fact of the miracle. Uh, And then in 13 through 17, the Pharisees debate, uh, debate it with the formerly blind man. Then in 18 through 23, John again establishes the fact of the miracle, this time talking to the parents. And then in verses 24 through 34, again, the Pharisees debate it with the formerly blind man back and forth. And then verse 35 through 41, we get kind of a twofold conclusion how things turn out with the formerly blind man and how they turn out with the religious leaders. And John is, is very concerned that we realize there is no doubt here that this was a confirmed miracle. The man was born blind. He had been blind until adulthood. His parents say in verse 23, he is of age. He, he had been a known beggar on the streets, and now he has regained his sight. And so John is going to show us the, the facts, and then he's going to show us the Pharisees ignoring and perverting those facts. Uh, you, you may know uh, the author Paul Tripp, he's fond of saying man does not live by the facts of his experience, man lives by his interpretation of those facts. And that's what, we're, what is going on here. The Pharisees' interpretation clearly distorts the facts as we will see them. And the question for us really is, do our presuppositions and preconceived notions similarly distort the facts? Can we see Jesus for who he is? And if not, what is it that's getting in the way? To look at the evidence and not see God is like wearing joke glasses, which obscure rather than correct your vision. And so is your vision blurry? What gets in the way of you seeing Jesus this morning? First, looking to rules rather than seeing your sin. What happens next in the story is just what you might expect. Uh, other people take notice. The man's neighbors and others who had been seeing him begging in, on the streets day after day, month after month, year after year, they take notice. And you, you may know that in Greek, the, the way questions are formed implies an expected answer, yes or no. And the question in verse seven is formed with the expectation of a yes answer. That's not verse 7, but verse 17. Uh, So they said to the blind man, what do you say about him? uh, No, that's not verse 17 either. All right, slow down. They were asking in verse 8, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? There we go. Verse 8, is this not the man? The expectation is of a yes answer. And so we might paraphrase this. Isn't this the guy who sits here begging every day? Uh, this is him, right? Now, some people do say yes, but others say no. He just looks like that man. But he himself kept saying, It's me. I'm the man who used to sit and beg. I am that man. Now, some are skeptical, but uh, others are astounded. They all want to know what happened, right? How were your eyes opened? And the formerly blind man reports things detail for detail in verse 11. He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Now, whenever a story is repeated like this, the point is to emphasize what happened. The man called Jesus did just uh, such and such a thing. He commanded such and such a thing with the result that I received my sight. It's interesting that they they next take the man to the religious leaders in verse 13. Uh, It seems to me that they want some authority to confirm or deny what just took took place. And at this point, John slips in the detail that he had left out until now in verse 14. He says, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And this is going to, to become relevant pretty quickly the Pharisees too ask him how he received his sight he gives them the same story he put mud on my eyes uh, apparently they know exactly who the he is that he's talking about he put mud on my eyes and i washed and i see these are the facts of the situation and they they begin to debate the meaning of those facts uh, people are made to interpret it's natural to want to understand to ask what and how and why uh, but the religious leaders are divided uh, some say in verse 16 this man is not from god for he does not keep the sabbath but others say how can a man who is a sinner do such things uh, why is there this division they all see the same facts they've all heard the same story and yet they're divided well some say how can a man who is a sinner do such signs uh, the logic here as that these signs are from God, therefore this man must be from God. He must not be a sinner. There's no other explanation. But others of the Pharisees disagree. He, he can't be from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. And The Sabbath seems to have always been a polarizing thing. God himself commands people to keep the Sabbath in no less significant a place than the Ten Commandments. And The Sabbath command is important. The Sabbath principle of rest one day in seven isn't done away with, though other Old Testament Sabbath laws have been. But while any discussion of the Sabbath must be nuanced, Jesus' healing on the Sabbath shows, if nothing else, that their understanding of the Sabbath is wrong. And their rejection of Jesus shows that they see the Sabbath as a means of self-advancement, right? They see the Sabbath as a means of being or becoming right with God. Their sense of identity comes from keeping this law from how they live. If I do this, then I am right with God. But here's a man who doesn't play by their values, by their rules, who undermines them. And so it undermines their sense of self, and they conclude, this man is not from God. He doesn't do what we do to be right with God. You see, if you look to a set of rules to get your sense of value, if you look to a set of rules to get your sense of worth, uh, your, val- your identity, your righteousness, you will likely be bothered by Jesus because he plays by no one's rules, at least no man-made rules. He doesn't play by the religious rules of his own day. He certainly won't fit into our value systems today. If you think my value, my self-worth comes from being a good moral person, Jesus will challenge your sense of morality and call you out for failing to live up to his. If you think my value and self-worth come from being true to myself and my desires, Jesus will challenge your self-centeredness and call you out for failing to live true to God and his desires. And my point is simply this, whatever rules you construct for yourself, as you read the scriptures, Jesus will not fit into them. Will you let that blind you to who he is? Will you let the fact that Jesus does not follow your rules blind you to who Jesus really is? That's what the Pharisees are doing. If you look to rules to get your sense of self, when someone flaunts those rules, you have to react or else lose your sense of self. And that's what the religious leaders here do. On the other hand, look at the blind man. His problem, he probably doesn't have much of a sense of self to begin with. Right? He, has, he has no pride. He has spent his life begging for his daily bread. The Pharisees turn to him and say, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And the man who had been blind says simply, he is a prophet. He says he's a prophet because he doesn't have any other category to put Jesus in. I mean, what do you call a wonder worker, a miracle man, a healer? In that day, you said he was a prophet, a man of God. Well, what do you say about Jesus? Jesus will not endorse our uh, particular values. He won't endorse our our political right and left. Uh, He's not a Luddite or a technophile. He's not a teetotaler or a party animal. Uh, He he will not play by your rule book, whatever it is. He will not endorse your self-promotion project. If you cling to those things for your sense of self, you will have a hard time seeing him for who he is. So the first thing which blurs our vision is when we look to rules for our sense of self. The second thing is looking to other people. The religious leaders still don't believe this man has been blind. And their question in verse 17 should probably be taken as sarcastic when they say, what do you say about him since he, air quotes, opened your eyes? And so they seek to disprove the man's story by calling in his parents. They call them in and ask in verse 19, is this your son who you say was born blind how then does he now see uh, notice there are really 3 not just 2 questions in what they say they ask is this your son and how does he now see uh, but they don't just say is this your son but is this your son who you say was born blind that is was he was he really born blind you you say he was but come on is, is it true And their answer is actually fairly diplomatic in verse 20. Uh, Yes, this is our son, that much we know. And we know he was born blind, we can attest to that. But how he now sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Which uh, that last part is a little fishy, perhaps, because if they don't know how he now sees, how do they know that someone opened his eyes? But uh, they end by by saying, ask him right he's old enough he can speak for himself ask him now john tells us why they give the answer they do in verses 22 to 23 his parents said these things because they feared the jews for the jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess jesus to be christ he was to be put out of the synagogue therefore his parents said he is of age ask him you see they're afraid They don't want to be put out of the synagogue, they don't wanna be ostracized, to be looked down upon, to be rejected, and their fear controls them. You see, when you look to other people for your sense of self-worth and belonging, that will control you, it will control what you say, it will control what you're willing to believe. They won't admit that Jesus is the Christ. They won't even admit the miraculous, that Jesus healed their son, their son who was born blind, their blind son whom they raised, their blind son they had cared for for decades, something they had longed for and likely prayed for for years and years had finally come true, but they won't admit it because they're afraid. That's true, of course. If you start saying Jesus is who he said he is, if you start confessing Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, people just might start looking at you funny. Some people will Anyway. Perhaps certain family members, or fellow students, or professors, or even friends. The question is, will you let your fear of people override what you know to be true? Will you let your fear of people dictate what you will believe? If you look to those people for acceptance and belonging, if you look to people for your sense of self, you will have an impossible time seeing Jesus. He will remain blurry in your eyes. So the first thing which blurs our vision is when we look to rules for a sense of self, Second thing is when we look to other people for acceptance and belonging. Third, looking down on other people. Uh, It it won't do to go from looking up to other people to looking down on other people. They both end in the same place. After the religious leaders get nowhere with the man's parents, they call uh, back in the man who had been blind. Uh, I love, by the way, how John intentionally calls him by that title, right? That title, the man who had been blind. He's not a blind man anymore. And so he calls him the man who had been blind, which really stands in for the man for whom Jesus worked a miracle. He once was blind, but now he sees. The man who had been blind. They call him back in and they get a bit aggressive. They say, okay, man, give glory to God, which is something like, don't lie, tell the truth and so glorify God. We know, they say, that this man is a sinner. Come on, they're saying. We know he's a sinner. Just admit it and we can all go home. Now it's interesting to notice who knows what in the story. Uh, The formerly blind man's parents, they know, we're told, this is their son, they know he was born blind, but how he sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. We don't know that. Now, the religious leaders, quote, know that Jesus is a sinner. Uh, Really, right? How do they know that? Uh, Hint, for them, uh, it goes back to the Sabbath. Uh, But the formerly blind man does not take the bait. In verse 25, he says this, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. I love the honesty of the formerly blind man at this point. And then in in verse 27, he answered them, uh, "I, I have told you already They ask him again, what what did he do to you? He says, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Okay, perhaps it's not honesty. Perhaps he's being a bit cheeky. Uh, He knows they're fishing for holes. He's uncovering their dishonest motives. They don't want to know the truth. They want to catch Jesus in a lie that doesn't exist. And his impertinence to them is just going too far. So they revile him in verse 28. They say, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know, there's that word again, we know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Now, it's funny that that's what they say, because that is what Jesus has been talking about for chapters, that Jesus came from God. He keeps telling them, but they refuse to listen. And the man, this unlearned, formerly blind beggar, says this in verses 30 to 33. He says, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a blind man. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The religious leaders say they don't know where Jesus came from. They're saying they're they're unable to properly interpret these events. And so this unlearned beggar tells them, God does not listen to sinners. Uh, the, The belief in that day, and we'll see it elsewhere in John, was that miracles were the result of God answering prayer, which is pretty solid, right? In general, there is no power in the individual. So if something miraculous happens, it is because God answered prayer. But God won't listen to someone living in sin. Uh, The the formerly blind man doesn't mean someone who has sinned. That would be all of us. Uh, And though Jesus is sinless, that's probably not what this man is saying. He's just saying if Jesus were someone living in sin, God would not have answered his prayer. But God did answer his prayer. The conclusion then should be obvious to everyone. Jesus, in some way, which the blind man doesn't fully understand yet, is from God. Now how do they respond? You would think maybe the religious leaders would say, oh, thank you so much for your wisdom, formerly blind man. We appreciate learning from your humble take on these things. Or even, uh, that's an interesting perspective and and we're glad to dialogue with you, but, but we respectfully disagree. Either way would be better than what they actually say, which is, you were born in utter sin and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Their conclusion of the question about the man born blind is that whoever's fault it it was, he is born in utter sin. Their conclusion is to judge him, to look down on him, to condemn him. They will not listen to his arguments so they dismiss his person. For the religious leaders of that day and many days, righteousness or holiness is gradated. You know, she's more righteous than you, and I'm more righteous than her, and this other person is the most righteous of all. And we get our sense of self by comparative righteousness. This allows us to ignore the ugly facts of life by dismissing the person as less than. And that's what they do, they just dismiss this person. Today, the temptation for people on, on the right and the left is to look down on other people, right? The people on the right look down on the left, the people on the left look down on the right. You don't just disagree with someone, you disdain them. And once you've disdained them, you can dismiss them. I don't have to deal with your arguments. I don't have to face the fact that I might be wrong and you might be right. I, I simply disdain and dismiss. It was no different 2,000 years ago. You were born in utter sin. Would you teach us Away with you? I've, had, I've heard enough. Except nowadays we don't have to cast someone out of the synagogue, we just unfriend them on Facebook or delete them on social media. We cut them out of our lives without even having to confront them. So the first thing which blurs our vision is when we look to rules for our sense of self. The second is when we look to other people for acceptance and belonging. The third is when we look down on other people to bolster your comparative righteousness. The fourth is looking to our intellect. The story concludes with two endings really, one for the humble and the other for the proud. The humble is, of course, the man born blind. Humble because of his condition, first and foremost, but he also shows himself to have humility. The proud, on the other hand, are the religious elite, and we'll deal with them first. Jesus says in verse 39, "...for judgment I came into this world, for those who do not, for that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind." Those who do not see obviously refers to the man who had been born blind. He, he could not see. Jesus gave him sight, but it's it's more than that, as we'll see. But Jesus not only says that he came that those who do not see may see, but also so that those who see may become blind. It's kind of odd thing to say, but it's about the nature of Jesus. Uh, we tend to want to say that Jesus came for all happy purposes. Uh, we want to paint over the work of Jesus with kind of glitter and party hats. But the gospel cuts two ways. And Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. The same gospel, the same Christ saves and destroys, builds up and tears down. Multiple times in scripture we are told that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. At one point, Jesus is eating at a house with many tax collectors and sinners, and the religious leaders grumble at Jesus' disciples. And Jesus responds, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And notice what this does it forces the religious leaders, the people around Jesus, you and me, to put ourselves into one of two categories. We are all either sick or well. Sinners or righteous, blind or seeing. If you claim to be well, righteous, and seeing, then you are claiming to have no need of Jesus. The worst judgment possible for such pride is for Jesus to leave you to yourself. But if you see that you are sick and blind and sinful, Jesus came to make you well, to give you sight, to bring repentance and forgiveness. Some of the Pharisees hear Jesus' words about the blind seeing and those who are seeing becoming blind, and they respond, are we also blind? It's not really a question. They're they're not asking about the facts. They're asking about Jesus' claim, right? Are you calling us blind, Jesus? Is that what you're saying? They are claiming to see, right? Contrary to what Jesus says, and Jesus knows that, which is why he responds, if you were blind, that is, if you were to admit you were blind, you would have no guilt. Not no guilt at all, that's not what Jesus is saying, but on this issue. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus is saying your blindness is culpable because you refuse to admit it. Just admit it, but they won't do it. If you refuse to admit you might be wrong, you cannot learn and grow and become better. Being blind to your blindness is the worst blindness that there is. But that's what pride does, it blinds us to our blindness so that we think we see, we think we are well, we think we are righteous. If you get your sense of self from from being good or from other people's opinions of you or from comparative righteousness or from your intellectual position because you have it all figured out, you will struggle to see Jesus for who he really is. Your own supposed righteousness will get in the way. Jesus' hearers had pride with respect to their law-keeping, their reputation, their comparative righteousness, and their intellect, and their pl- pride blinds them to their blindness. But how then, you ask, how, how do I see Jesus? How do I get to that place? Well, verse 35. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast the formerly blind man out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, the formerly blind man, once despised because he was a blind beggar, now rejected because of his testimony to Jesus, he responds in humility to Jesus' question in verses 36 and 37. He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And the man responds in worship, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. See, if you want to see Jesus for who he is, if you want to see yourself for who you are or the world for what it is, come to Jesus, the son of man. People are ready to, to cast you out of their synagogues if you don't play their games, if you don't tow their party lines left or right. People are ready to cut you off and cancel you. But Jesus already said in John 6, 37, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus said to one church in the book of Revelation, he said, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And Jesus counseled them there, Buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And Jesus is saying, if you want true riches, true glory, true sight, come to me. How can he make such an offer? Well, because he did not come with pride. He neither feared men nor looked down on them. He was the one person who perfectly kept the law, but he did not disdain the sinful, the lowly, and the broken. Rather, he sympathized with sinners. God became man. The holy one walked with the unclean. The righteous one ate and drank with the unrighteous. The great question about human brokenness and human sin is not where did it come from, but what is to be done about it. It is not a question about its cause, but about its purpose. And Jesus says the great purpose is to display the works of God, and that is what Jesus did. He came to display the works of God in the cross. And in humility, he gave his life for sinners. He suffered and died for those who did not deserve it, for the sick, the blind, and the sinful, to make us whole, open our eyes, and forgive our sins. If you want Jesus to come into focus, see your sin for what it is. Accept the rejection that often comes with that. Admit your lowliness and embrace the folly of the cross. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would give us eyes to see Jesus for who he is, that you would help us to come to him and cling to him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.